out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Hi. Day 31 of 100 Days of Colin. Okay, throughout the rest of the week, we are doing nothing but readings um, until we come to conclusions. Fall has arrived. Things are changing. Schedules are changing. These are all good things. These are all good things. Um, and so tonight I will be telling you a little bit about Julian Assange and that he has the coronavirus disease. He is sick. He's down with the Rona. And he is currently in 24-7 quarantine. And now. So, um... Let's go ahead and go to Stella Assange's mail for a moment. So I'm just going to punch in here. Okay. So yes, Julian Assange has been COVID positive and is now in 24-hour lockdown. But she wants to talk about the human chain that was this weekend. Okay, and her first words are, Friends, thank you, Saturday. It was a historic achievement. Many of you will know since Saturday, Julian has tested positive for COVID and is now in 24-hour lockdown in his Belmarsh prison cell until further notice. I have told him about the great success on Saturday, and I am sending him pictures from the day to lift his spirits. He's profoundly moved by your massive show of support. No one knew for certain whether it would work, but the participation of each of you was essentially to extend the chain and to help make it a success. It is a metaphor of our movement, which we must continue to build stronger and longer, in which each of us are needed to achieve the goal of Julian's freedom. We came together, and in spite of the rail strike, the turnout exceeded our expectations. We needed 5,000 people to complete the circle. We achieved that and much more. People were standing shoulder to shoulder to shoulder in some sections, and the pavement was very crowded. So former former British Ambassador Craig Murray, who walked around the human chain when the siren went off, estimated numbers were 10,000 to 12,000. The images from the day speak for themselves. There were those who had tried to spread fear, uncertainty, and doubt to discourage us, but we persevered. We gave a clear and unified message that we are many, we are driven, and we are determined. We will not stop until Julian is free. It was a day of cooperation, solidarity, and common purpose, and above all, palpable hope in humanity. We will continue to build this movement to free Julian by planning more demos, and in the build-up close to those, we will build more talks and events locally. To help us plan these local events, we need your help and input. Please get in touch. We are planning more screenings of the films Ithaca, and Hacking Justice. Ithaca, about our family's struggle for Julian's freedom, will be showing at the Soho London Independent Film Festival in November. I will be at the screening of Ithaca at the Berlin Human Rights Film Festival on Thursday and Friday this week. We need to spread the word across about the injustice, cruelty, and inhumanity that is keeping a publisher imprisoned on remand year in and year out in a high-security prison in the middle of London. We need to call out the farcical claim that what is unfolding is a legitimate legal process. What is unfolding is the opposite of that. It is a political persecution 
which is instrumentalizing the British court system and exploiting extradition arrangements between the two countries. The so-called process itself is punitive, keeping Julian imprisoned year after year while he resists extradition to a U.S. show trial and a grotesque 175-year sentence as punishment for having published the truth. I personally, as a sidebar, think it's ridiculous because Dahmer didn't get 175 years, I don't think. And he was a serial killer. How can we even pretend that Julian could face a fair and equitable process when it is the country that plotted Julian's assassination that is demanding his extradition? How can anyone credibly argue that it is right for the country whose war crimes and torture Julian exposed in Iraq, Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, and elsewhere to then bring criminal proceedings against him for having published the evidence of the crimes the U.S. government committed. And how can anyone seriously contend that Julian faces a fair trial when U.S. authorities have violated attorney-client privilege through their criminal operations targeting Julian's lawyers and recording their conversations? Those who benefit from impunity for criminality and corruption committed in the dark are abusing the criminal justice system to punish the man who gave the public the evidence needed to achieve accountability. This is a case of rampant state corruption, not just evidenced into the documents that WikiLeaks published, but also in the criminal manner in which the political persecution is unfolding against him. U.S. and British authorities have gone rogue on this matter and we the people must spell out what the rule of law, justice, and democracy really mean in this case. And they all come down to one thing, freeing Julian Assange. Thank you again, and see you next time. So those, those are words from Stella Assange, Julian Assange's uh, lawyer-in-chief and his wife. So I'll just get to the reading momentarily. Okay, so we return to Chapter 3, Initial Contradictions Come to Light. The fog begins to clear. When Julian Assange's lawyers contacted me again in late March 2019, make sure we're in here, yes, again, when Julian Assange's lawyers contacted me in late March 2019, their tone had become significantly more urgent. There were reasons to suspect that Assange's expulsion from the Ecuadorian embassy and consequently his arrest by British police might be imminent. In recent weeks, Ecuadorian President Lenin Moreno had made statements leaving little doubt that he wanted to get rid of his embassy guests sooner than later. The British tabloid press had eagerly picked up the topic and gossiped about the increasingly strained relationship between embassy staff and Assange and about the latter's allegedly erratic and unpleasant behavior. It did not take more than a cursory glance at the headlines to put two and two together. In May 2017, U.S. friendly Moreno had placed, replaced U.S. skeptic Rafael Correa as president of Ecuador, a change which appeared to have sealed Assange's fate. It was entirely clear to me that if Assange were to be expelled from the embassy, the risk of his extradition to the United States would be, would increase massively, and with it the risk of serious violations of his human rights. A question 
started forming in my mind. Had I overlooked something when I dismissed the case this last time around? I decided to look into the matter a bit more closely and began to open the attached documents that had been forwarded to me. Among them, I found a summary of events since the WikiLeaks publications of 2010. The case was more complex than I had thought. Already the case history of the Swedish rape investigation, which had been discontinued without any results in 2017, raised many questions. Next, I read a medical report written by Dr. Sandra Crosby just a month earlier after visiting Assange at the Ecuadorian Embassy in February 2019. Crosby was not just anyone. A medical doctor and professor of medicine at Boston University, she was specialized in the examination of refugees and victims of torture and had been one of the first physicians to independently examine detained knees at Guantanamo. She had an excellent reputation and her voice carried weight. Most importantly to me, she was not associated with the Assange activist camp and was therefore unlikely to take a one-sided position. Crosby's report, which has since been leaked on the internet, described a cornered man whose strength was dwindling after seven years of confinement. Ill-equipped for long-term accommodation to begin with, the embassy had now become increasingly hostile and intimidating environment for Assange, with serious effects on his mental and physical health. According to Crosby, Assange was suffering from increasingly severe chronic stress caused by an accumulation of factors, including cramped quarters, lack of sunlight and exercise, sensory deprivation, social isolation, and punitive suspension of his access to visitors, phone calls, and the internet. In conjunction with the indefinite and uncertain nature of his confinement and the lack of adequate medical care, these factors were conducive to serious physical and psychological risks, including suicide. In addition, Crosby expressed grave concern at the persistent and personal attacks on Mr. Assange's dignity and acts meant to degrade and humiliate him including increasingly intrusive surveillance. Crosby's medical examination of Assange had been monitored by surveillance cameras, and they were forced to speak over the noise of a radio to avoid being overheard. During Crosby's brief absence from the interview room, her confidential medical notes were removed and later found in an office used by the embassy's security staff, where they evidently had been leafed through and read in blatant violation of doctor-patient confidentiality. Crosby's conclusion was unequivocal. It is my professional opinion that the synergistic and cumulative effect of the pain and suffering inflicted on Mr. Assange, both physical and psychological, is in violation of the 1984 Convention Against Torture, Article 1 and Article 16. I believe the psychological, physical, and social sequelae will be long-lasting and severe. Another attachment, including a report by the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, WGAD, the body that had issued the press release on on the Assange case, in which I had declined to join three months earlier. Although the WGAD's report, number 54-2015, dated from 4th of December 2015, it was now only in March 2019 that I actually took the time to read it. 
The opinion had been written at a time when the Swedish case was still open, but had been pending at the very initial stage of a preliminary investigation for more than five years. Throughout this time, the Swedish prosecutor had apparently never even brought formal charges against Assange. The UN experts rightly observed that prolonged confinement without charge was incompatible with the presumption of innocence. It seemed that the perpetuation of this procedural stalemate, and in particular Assange's fear of extradition to the United States, were what prevented him from leaving the embassy. Given that both Sweden and the United Kingdom refused to offer any assurances against Assange's onward extradition to the United States, the status quo of his embassy asylum was likely to continue indefinitely. Did this mean that Assange's confinement at the embassy amounted to arbitrary deprivation of liberty? The WGAD answered in the affirmative, thus implicitly accepting the argument that Assange's embassy asylum was his only option to avoid extradition to the United States and the related risk of political persecution and inhumane conditions of detention. Like any other human being, Assange could not reasonably be expected to give up his safety and expose himself to the risk of serious human rights violations. Consequently, if Assange's fear of persecution was taken seriously, his continued stay in the embassy could not be described as voluntary. By providing guarantees against his onward extradition to the United States, Sweden and the United Kingdom could easily have ended the stalemate and enabled Assange to participate in the Swedish investigation. In view of the refusal to provide such guarantees, the only logical conclusion for the working group was that Assange was being arbitrarily deprived of his liberty by both countries. Their governments disagreed, of course. First, they demanded that WGAD reconsider. When the working group confirmed its conclusions, they declared that the, they disagreed with the UN body's opinion and therefore would simply ignore it. It is downright absurd, of course, for states claiming to be governed by the rule of law to first engage in legal proceedings before a, U a mandated UN body, and then to accept its conclusions only if they go in their favor. But this did not seem to bother either government. Instead, and rather ironically, they continued to accuse Assange of evading justice and downplayed their own responsibility for the situation. Mr. Assange is free to leave the embassy at any time, and the Swedish-British authorities have no control over his decision to remain in the embassy. To me, the working group's assessment seemed plausible. I could only agree with its rationale. A year earlier, in March of 2018, my report to the Human Rights Council had focused on migration-related torture, AHRC 37-50. In all regions of the world, countless asylum seekers reach the border of their des destination state, only to be stopped there and held in closed camps. Here, too, the authorities claim that asylum seekers are not being deprived of their liberty, that they are not being arbitrarily detained, but are completely free to leave at any time. Indeed, free to leave, they are but only in one direction, back to where they came from, back to the risk of war, violence, and abuse. So let us be clear, whenever we give a person no other choice but to remain locked up or else expose themselves to serious danger, then we are effectively depriving them of their liberty. Anything else is delusional. 
Hence, the WGAD's finding that Assange's confinement at the embassy amounted to arbitrary deprivation of liberty. The clarity with which the working group analyzed Assange's situation was remarkable. Usually, a single special rapporteur is more likely to take courageous and outspoken position than a collective body of five independent UN experts, which tends to settle for the lowest common denominator. In the Assange case, there was only one dissenting opinion within the working group, making the unanimity of the majority of members all more significant. Another document I consulted was an interview with James Goodall, a former general counsel for the New York Times that would be the impact of U.S. prosecution of Assange on press freedom as guaranteed under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution? Goodale, I think it's Goodale, James Goodale. Goodale know, knew when he was talking, what he was talking about, sorry. Uh, already in 1971, when the New York Times published the so-called Pentagon Papers about the Vietnam War, he had forcefully and successfully fought against the attempted criminalization of journalism under the U.S. Espionage Act. Goodale made clear that whatever Assange may have published via WikiLeaks, and whomever may have provided him with the material, he was the publisher, not the source. Moreover, Assange had not stolen the published material, but had obtained it freely from a whistleblower. His actions were therefore protected under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. If Assange were to be prosecuted, nonetheless, it would set a terrible precedent for investigative journalism. It would mean that from then on, any publication based on leaked material would become a crime. Resulting, the resulting danger from pre for press freedom could not be overstated. I had been reading for a long time. For a moment, I looked through my window across the lowlands that separated the Jura from the Alps. The air had cleared, and the snow-covered triple peaks of the Eiger, the Monk, and the Jungfrau rose into the bright blue sky like giants from the fog dissolving beneath them. Crosby's medical report, the working group's conclusions, and Goodale's assessment had made me think. I slowly began to wake up to my own prejudice, which had clouded my judgment and led me summarily to dismiss Assange's initial appeal three months earlier. What troubled me the most was the self-righteous ease and unshakable certainty with which I had accepted a largely unsubstantiated narrative as unquestionable fact. Now that I had scratched the thin veneer of this narrative and caught the first glimpse behind the curtain, I could no longer close my eyes to the enormous political dimensions of this case. It had become clear to me, at the very least, I owed it to my personal and professional integrity to take a closer look and form my own opinion, based not on hearsay, but on verified fact. Preliminary Protective Measures At this early stage, my main concern was to prevent Assange's fast-track extradition to the United States, whether directly by the Ecuadorians or, after his expulsion from the embassy, by the British. The CIA's extra extraordinary renditions, which involved kidnappings without any legal process, followed by torture and arbitrary detention in secret black sites around the globe, had set a disturbing precedent. Although the U.S. indictment against Assange had not yet been unsealed, its existence had been an open secret for a long time. While one could only speculate on the precise charges, I seriously con was con seriously concerned 
that in the United States Assange would be exposed to an unfair, politically motivated trial and a draconian punishment. Moreover, the conditions of detention in U.S. supermax prisons and other high-security facilities where Assange would most likely be held had long been regarded as cruel, inhuman, and degrading by both by my predecessors and by various relevant human rights organizations. These were the thoughts that guided my next steps. I would send two official letters to Ecuador and the United Kingdom, reminding them of the universal principle of non-refoulement, which establishes an absolute prohibition against returning or deporting people to countries where they risk being tortured, executed, or subjected to other serious violations of their human rights. At the same time, I would announce my intention to visit Assange at the Ecuadorian Embassy and to meet with Ecuadorian amb Ambassador and senior British government officials. Most importantly, however, I would formally appeal to the Ecuadorian government to refrain from expelling Assange until the protection of his human rights could be guaranteed and, in the meantime, to do everything possible to prevent a deterioration in his health. The deeper I looked into the case, the more apparent it became that much more was at stake here than Assange's personal fate. It was hard to deny that with the criminalization of Assange's publications, a dangerous precedent would be set for investigative journalism as a whole. If indeed this was the real motivation behind prosecuting Assange, then my diplomatic letters alone would not be sufficient to resolve the matter and could even be counterproductive. To forestall the unpredictable knee-jerk reactions on the part of the involved states, it would be important to generate public attention before I transmitted my official letters to the United Kingdom and Ecuador. In a first step, I therefore issued a press statement entitled UN Expert on Torture Alarmed by Reports Assange could soon be expelled from Ecuadorian Embassy. It announced my intention to personally investigate the case and summarized my human rights concerns. It further urged Ecuador and the United Kingdom to not revoke Assange's asylum and not to take any steps towards his extradition to the United States. The primary purpose of the statement was to alert the public and the media and to send an unequivocal message to the two governments. Whatever may have happened so far, from now on, the UN Special Rapporteur is watching you closely and soon will be coming to London to investigate this case. The press statement was issued on evening of Friday the 5th of April, and immediately on the following Monday morning, my two official letters were sent to the permanent missions of the United Kingdom and Ecuador. They announced my intention to visit the embassy on the 25th of April and requested face-to-face -face meetings with Julian Assange and the Ecuadorian ambassador in London. This was to be followed by meetings with British government officials, particularly those who would be responsible for the decision-making process in the event of Assange's expulsion from the embassy and a U.S. extradition request. The declared purpose of my visit was to find a long-term solution to Assange's situation in compliance with human rights requirements. Operation Pelican, Assange's arrest. The British ambassador to the United Nations in Geneva replied two days later with a short and rather tight-lipped letter. Apparently, my decision to inform the public before reaching out to the government had caused a degree of irritation. 
The British government agreed to pay my proposed visit to Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy on 25th of April, but declined my request to meet British, with British authorities. You will appreciate that it would not be appropriate for officials to speculate on hypothetical scenarios. Instead, I was directed to a government website where I could find general information about Br the British asylum procedures. Speculate on the hypothetical scenarios. This referred to my concern that Assange might be arrested and extradited by the United Kingdom to the United States. Hypothetical. Pure speculation. These were the words used by the British ambassador on 10 April of 2019. Less than 24 hours later, on the morning of the 11th of April, the Ecuadorian embassy in London opened its doors to officers of the Metropolitan Police, and Julian Assange was arrested, dragged out of the embassy, and pushed into a police van. On that very same day, he was brought before the Westminster Magistrates Court for adjudication. The judge did not appear to require the luxury of a fully-fledged criminal trial to make up his mind. After a 15-minute hearing, he swiftly convicted Assange of a bail violation committed seven years earlier. Then he sent them to Britain's toughest, highest security prison to await sentencing. Assange now faced up to one year in prison. In its official press statement, the Ecuadorian government tried to justify Assange's expulsion from the embassy based on claims that he had repeatedly violated inter-American treaties on diplomatic asylum, as well as special protocol of coexistence that had been drafted specifically for the purpose of regulating his everyday life at the embassy. Whatever the factual accuracy of these accusations as a matter of law, neither of them was capable of overriding the absolute prohibition of refoulement. Assange clearly had not been offered any form of due process as would be imperatively required prior to any revocation of asylum. He had not been informed of the government's intention in advance and had not been given the opportunity to consult with a lawyer nor to comment on, object to, or appeal the decision. He was simply expelled by a unilateral order of the Ecuadorian president. Moreover, Assange had been granted Ecuadorian citizenship in 2017 and that country's constitution categorically prohibits the extradition of nationals. Therefore, one hour before Assange's expulsion, Ecuador not only revoked his asylum but also suspended his citizenship, allegedly due to irregularities in his papers and, again, without any form of due process. One wonders what kind of irregularities could possibly have existed in the papers of a national who had lived inside the Ecuadorian embassy for the entire duration of his citizenship with no opportunity to travel, change his residence, or even leave it. Tellingly, President Moreno described all of this as a sovereign act of state, a perspective reminiscent of the infamous words attributed to Louis VIII, maybe the Louis XIV, I think it is, the absolutist sun king of the 17th century. L'etat-se-moi, the antithesis of the rule of law. In his press statement of 11th April, Moreno expressly assured the world that he had received guarantees from the United Kingdom that Assange would not be extradited to a country where he could face the death penalty, torture, or ill-treatment 
precisely those guarantees that both the United Kingdom and Sweden had always insisted could not be given to Assange. Assange had always predicted that were he to ever set foot outside the embassy, he would be immediately arrested on a U.S. extradition request. On 11 April 2019, all those who had ridiculed his fears as narcissistic paranoia were proved wrong. Within an hour of his expulsion and arrest, the United States handed over their extradition request to the British authorities and unsealed their secret indictment against Assange. To the surprise of most observers, the indictment turned out to be much less severe than anticipated. Assange was not, as some expected, charged with espionage, but only with a single count of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. More precisely, he was accused of having inspired with his source, Chelsea Manning, then known as U.S. Private, Army Private, First Class Bradley Manning, to help decrypt a password hash for the U.S. Department of Defense computer system. Importantly, Manning already had full, top-secret access privileges to the system and all the documents she leaked to Assange. So, even according to the U.S. government, the point of the alleged attempt to decode that password hash was not to gain unauthorized access to classified information hacking, but to help Manning to cover her tracks inside the system by logging in with a different identity, source protection. In any case, the alleged attempt undisputedly remained unsuccessful and did not result in any harm whatsoever. If Assange were, be to, were to be convicted on this charge, he would face a prison sentence of up to five years. Given that this is the maximum sentence applicable only to the most serious and harmful cases of computer intrusion, the sanction for Assange's alleged unsuccessful attempt would probably have to be reduced to a suspended prison sentence of a few weeks or even just a moderate fine. But I was under no illusion that the United States could have pursued Assange for almost a decade across several jurisdictions just to let him get away with a minor sanction for an unsuccessful attempt at a computer intrusion, a petty offense that is committed literally millions of times every single day. No, I was certain that this was only the beginning and that the U.S. would significantly expand their indictment at some point, some convenient point on the line. It was obvious that the events of 11th April 2019 had been planned and coordinated well in advance between Ecuador, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Anyone acquainted with the cumbersome communication and decision-making processes of political hierarchies, bureaucracies, and diplomatic services knows that achieving such a tight sequencing of highly complex events and having them unfold within a few hours with the involvement of officials from various branches of government and three jurisdictions on three different continents takes weeks, if not months, to prepare. When less than 24 hours before Assange's expulsion and arrest, the British ambassador in his letter to me formally dismissed my concerns as groundless speculation about a hypothetical scenario. He must have known that he was deliberately misleading an officially mandated special rapporteur of the United Nations. The ambassador may not have been notified of the precise date of Assange's expulsion, but in a politicized case like this, it is completely out of the question 
that he would have approved my visit request to the UK for the 25th of April without prior consultation with the political leadership in London, themselves closely involved in the planning of Operation Pelican, the code name for Assange's forcible removal from the Ecuadorian embassy. Indeed, as we now know from the memoirs of Alan Duncan, then the British Minister of State for Europe and the Americas, direct negotiations started around the time of the secret U.S. indictment in March of 2018. In October of that year, Duncan notes, The Assange issue is progressing. Our channels into Ecuador are paving the way to a solution. It seems Assange's expulsion had originally been planned for 9th January 2019. However, on the 8th of January, the minister notes in his diary, Annoyingly, Assange's forcible exit from the Ecuadorian embassy has been delayed. The following months see regular diary entries by the minister recounting a slow but steady progress in the negotiations between the British and Ecuadorian offices or officials. Excuse me. By 28 March, Duncan is a confident. I think I'm nearly there with Ecuador to get Julian Assange out of their London embassy. It's taken months of delicate negotiations, but nearly, nearly. Then on 11th April, suddenly it's game on. I'm told that Assange will be sprung from the embassy today, so I drop everything and head to the operations room at the top of the foreign office. With hindsight, and without overestimating the influence of my mandate, I believe that my initiative may have inadvertently have accelerated the course of events. My public appeal, together with the announcement of an official on-site investigation, appeared to have touched a sensitive nerve. For this human rights-based appeal contradicted the carefully constructed narrative of Assange as a spoiled, coward, traitor, rapist, and hacker who finally needed to be dragged out of his luxurious hiding place and brought to justice. In the eyes of the governments involved, my investigation would, at best, mean an unwelcome delay in Assange's long-decided expulsion, arrest, and extradition. At worst... It could cause considerable disruption and embarrassment, expose the authorities to public scrutiny, and require them to justify their actions. Be that as it may, a new fate accompli had now been established in a manner that set all alarm bells ringing in my mind. Why now, suddenly after almost seven years of lethargic stagnation, this hasty expulsion, arrest, and conviction in such obvious violation of due process and the rule of law. Why this suspiciously mild U.S. indictment, which virtually screamed for worse? And why had the British ambassador lied to me? Why such contempt for my mandate? After all, I was no enemy, political activist, or dissident. I had been appointed and mandated by states to exercise my function in partnership and constructive cooperation with them. What was going on here? Something was obviously wrong, and now I began to seriously doubt the good faith of the governments involved. Judicial bias. Does an arrest warrant for a bail violation remain formally valid, even when underlying extradition requests had been withdrawn? If so, is there still a public interest in prosecuting such a bail violation, especially if it was committed exclusively to avoid serious human rights violations, and thus without any criminal intent? In February 2018, just over a year before Assange's expulsion from the embassy, lawyers 
had raised these questions in the court and filed an application to cancel the original British arrest warrant for bail violation, which had been issued in 2012. The Swedish extradition request, in relation to which Assange had been arrested and sub subsequently released on bail in December of 2010, had been formally withdrawn in May of 2017, after the Swedish prosecution had closed its preliminary investigation into allegations of rape for the second time in almost seven years. Further, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention had found that Assange's prolonged confinement at the embassy amounted to arbitrary deprivation of liberty. In the view of his lawyers, the difficult conditions of Assange's confinement at the embassy since 2012, as well as its justification as diplomatic asylum from political persecution, rendered the continued persecution prosecution, sorry, and punishment for that offense disproportionate and outside the realm of public interest. In her ruling of 13 February 2018, Emma Arbutnot, <laughs> senior district judge at the Westminster Magistrates Court, dismissed all of these arguments. He, Assange, appears to consider himself above the normal rules of law and wants justice only if it goes in his favor. Earlier, she had painted a distorted, almost trivializing picture of Assange's living conditions in the Ecuadorian embassy and seemed to mock its equation by the UN working groups with arbitrary deprivation of liberty. According to Arbutnot, Assange could sit in the sunlight on the balcony of the embassy at any time, his internet access was permanently guaranteed, his meetings with visitors were unlimited and not supervised, and he could choose what he wanted to eat. Of course, she did not miss the opportunity to point out that Assange could leave the embassy whenever he wishes, adding that the inmates of Wandsworth Prison would likely be likely to dispute the assertion that such living conditions were akin to remand in custody. Having dismissed the WGAD's assessment as wrong and inaccurate, Judge Arbudnot accorded it little weight in her decision. In so doing, she echoed the self-righteous attitude of the British government, which, after two years of active participation in the proceedings, refused to respect and implement the WGAD's conclusions simply because they had not turned out in favor of the United Kingdom. The judge seemed completely oblivious to the striking irony of dismissing the working group's official conclusions and, in the same breath, accusing Assange of accepting justice only when it was in his favor. What Assange's lawyers could not know is that none of the legal arguments they raised during his hearing ever mattered. The real plot being played out was an entirely different one. Exactly three weeks later, on 6th of March, 2018, a U.S. grand jury would issue its secret indictment against Assange. Judge Arbutnot, no doubt, was well informed. Already two months earlier, on 22nd of December, 2017, the United States had been transmitted a diplomatic note to the British government requesting Assange's provisional arrest in preparation for his impending indictment. On the very same day, Judge Snow at Westminster Magistrates Court, the judge who would summarily convict Assange of bail violation on 11th of April 2019, hastened to comply 
and issued a second arrest warrant for Assange. Had Arbuthnot canceled, not canceled, sorry, had Arbuthnot canceled, sorry, it was it was just canceled, the first arrest warrant as requested by Assange, the second warrant requested by the United States would have been difficult to conceal. So in February of 2018, it was absolutely crucial to uphold the first arrest warrant relating to the alleged bail violation as a smokescreen for the second. Accordingly, until the very moment of Assange's expulsion and arrest, the impending U.S. indictment and extradition request had had to be treated as a hypothetical scenario which it would not be appropriate for officials to speculate on. But there was even more serious catch to Judge Arbuthnot's ruling. Her husband, Lord James Arbuthnot, not only sits as a Tory in the House of Lords, he has also held high positions in the British defense industry for decades and until 2014 was chairman of the Defense Select Committee, whose tasks include overseeing the British military. The crux of the matter, WikiLeaks had reported published numerous documents relating to activities by organizations and individuals with close professional and political connections to Lord Arbutnot. Judge Arbutnot herself is and is said to have received gifts from a security company exposed by WikiLeaks. Nonetheless, Judge Arbutnot had not only ruled to uphold Assange's arrest warrant in 2018, she also personally presided over the U.S. extradition proceedings against Julian Assange until the summer of 2019. After that, District Judge Vanessa Barrister, I think it's Barrister, District Judge Vanessa Barrister, a colleague subordinate to to her at the same court, took over the case. Irrespective of the veracity, these alleged conflicts of interest create a reasonable perception of bias. Due process requires, requires that any judge must recuse themselves as soon as the facts of the case suggest a real possibility of judicial prejudice. It is not only the right of the defendant to, to a fair trial, which is at stake, but also the public interest in due process. Therefore, in clear, clear cases like this one, there can be no discretion on the part of either the judge or even the defendant himself in this matter. Based on evidence of possible conflicts of interest, Assange's lawyers filed an application for recusal on 8th of April 2019. Of course, a formal recusal of Judge Arbutnot would not only have prevented her future involvement in the case, it would have also challenged the validity of any decision against Assange in which she had been previously involved including her confirmation of the current arrest warrant. Without a valid arrest warrant, however, the British police would have to would have been unable to arrest Assange in the event of his expulsion from the Ecuadorian embassy. So Sweden had re- withdrawn its own arrest warrant and extradition request two years earlier, and the United States had not unsealed their indictment and filed their extradition request. The absence of an arrest warrant. Assange would have been free to leave not only the Ecuadorian embassy, but also the United Kingdom for any destination of his choice. It is therefore reasonable to assume 
that in addition to my press release of 5th April and my two letters to the British and Ecuadorian governments of 8th of April, Assange's application for recusal put the authorities under considerable time pressure. Suddenly, everything had to happen very fast. Assange had to be expelled, arrested, and above all, convicted by a different judge without delay to ensure a formally unassailable legal basis for his arrest. Not surprisingly, therefore, things speeded up. Only three days later, on 11th April, Assange had lost both his Ecuadorian citizenship and his diplomatic asylum and was standing before Judge Michael Snow at Westminster's Magistrates Court. During the hearing, Defense Counsel Liam Walker argued that in 2012, Assange had a reasonable justification for seeking diplomatic asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy rather than surrendering to British custody for extradition, extradition sorry, to Sweden. Most notably, Assange feared that once in the Swedish custody, he would not receive adequate judicial protection against onward extradition to the United States, a fear which had been officially recognized as reasonable by the government of Ecuador. Walker also reiterated Assange's formal objection in relationship to Judge Arputnot's possible conflicts of interest. In normal circumstances, any such objection would have been required, would have required Judge Snow to suspend the hearing in order to formally address the question of recusal, particularly since a well-documented application to that effect had already been submitted to the same court three days earlier. But Judge Snow reportedly found it unacceptable, grossly unfair, and improper for Assange to raise a due process objection of judicial bias against Judge Arbutnot. Just to ruin the reputation of a senior and able judge in front of the press. Speaking in front of the press gallery, however, the Honorable Judge Snow saw nothing unacceptable, grossly unfair, or improper in describing Assange's legitimate concerns as laughable, and his behavior as that of a narcissist who cannot get beyond his own selfish interest. Even though, during the entire hearing, Assange had said nothing except, I plead not guilty. The ease with which Judge Snow ridiculed and insulted Assange in open court was astonishing. A year earlier, Judge Arbutnot also openly trivialized Assange's arbitrary confinement in the embassy and simply dismissed the opinion of the United Nations WGAD in the matter. Both judges must have been rather confident that their attitude expressed a consensus on Julian Assange that was shared not only within the British judiciary, but also within the other branches of government and mainstream media. Of course, Assange's criminal trial should never have been scheduled for the day of his arrest in the first place, a day which would foreseeably have generated high levels of stress and anxiety in a defendant who had just spent close to seven years in a confined and increasingly claustrophobic and hostile space. In the morning, around 9.15 a.m., officers of the London Metropolitan Police entered the Ecuadorian Embassy. Within the following hour, the Ecuadorian ambassador informed Assange of the termination of his diplomatic asylum and the suspension of his Ecuadorian citizenship and asked him to leave the premises. 
When Assange refused, protesting the blatant illegality of the expulsion without due process, the ambassador had him handcuffed, handcuffed and forcibly dragged out of the embassy by British police. It was about 10.15 a.m. when he was carried into a waiting police van, forced to leave all his personal belongings, computers, and documents behind. At the police station, Assange was promptly served with a second arrest warrant in connection with the U.S. extradition request, which had been transmitted to the British government immediately upon his expulsion. It goes without saying that under due process requirements, no defendant can reasonably be expected to prepare his defense and stand trial within a few hours of undergoing the sudden and cumulative trauma of unlawful expulsion, violent arrest, criminal charges, and extradition request. But the due process manifestly was not part of the plan. Instead, a court hearing had already been prearranged for the same afternoon. For the same afternoon. Quite evidently, with the sole purpose of finding Assange guilty of an offense allegedly alleged to have been committed almost seven years earlier, since the judge did not appear to find any added value in considering the legal arguments brought by the defendant, he allowed Assange no more than 15 minutes of preparation time together with his lawyer and then pushed through the entire hearing in less than half an hour. This is what summary trials look like everywhere in the world. On May 1st, a third degree, a third judge, sorry, a third judge, Deborah Taylor, handed down the sentence, 50 weeks in prison, just two weeks shy of the maximum sentence of one year. According to Taylor, it was difficult to imagine a more serious example of bail violation. After all, she explained Assange's surveillance during his years at the embassy had cost the British taxpayer $16 million. The absurdity of her reasoning is obvious. The gravity of, a, of an offense does not increase with the cost of surveillance of the suspect. Involuntary manslaughter does not become first-degree murder just because it took 10 years to track down the perpetrator. A theft of $100 remains a comparative minor offense even if the authorities chose to spend 100000 on its investigation. Clearly, it was not Assange, but the British authorities alone who had decided not to recognize the diplomatic asylum lawfully granted by Ecuador and to have the embassy besieged around the clock for seven years. By British standards, 50 weeks in prison for a bail violation is a completely disproportionate sanction. The vast majority of bail violations that do not involve the perpetration of additional serious offenses are punished with fines or disciplinary sanctions. Even if a bail violation were to result in a short custodial sentence, that sentence would certainly not be served in a high-security setting amounting to solitary confinement. Except in the case of Julian Assange, he was immediately returned to Belmarsh Prison in London, infamous as Britain's Guantanamo Bay. Now more than ever, from my perspective, the circumstances had now changed entirely. My visit to the Ecuadorian embassy had become obsolete, of course, but I had not abandoned my plan to visit Assange. On the contrary, my initial reluctance had given way to an ever-strengthening determination to get to the bottom of this matter. On 18 April 2019, I sent a follow-up letter to the government of Ecuador 
expressing strong criticism of Assange's expulsion without advance notice, legal remedy, or any other form of due process. I further requested answers to several pressing questions. Why had the Ecuadorian government completely ignored my appeal to suspend Assange's expulsion, at least for the duration of my official investigation? How was the determination of Assange's citizenship and diplomatic asylum compatible with international human rights standards and the rule of law more generally? How was it compatible with Ecuador's long-standing position that Assange needed diplomatic protection against the danger of extradition in the United States, a danger which now materialized precisely as a consequence of Assange's expulsion from the Ecuadorian embassy? What measures had been taken by Ecuador with a view to preventing violations of Assange's human rights, whether by the United Kingdom or by any other state? I concluded by expressing my expectation that the alleged violations would be investigated and those responsible held accountable. This was all I could do. Media attention had already moved on to the new scenario and the wider public appeared unconcerned with my uncomfortable questions. By expelling Assange, Ecuador had relieved itself of a problem in which its leadership no longer had any interest in resolving constructively. From their perspective, the ball was now back in Britain's court. On the same day, therefore, I also sent a follow-up letter to the British government requesting permission to visit Assange in prison within a month of his arrest, no longer, no later than May 10. In line with the UN standard terms of reference for detention visits, I explained that I intended to conduct a confidential interview with Assange to evaluate his conditions of detention and to carry out a thorough medical examination with the help of specialized doctors. I also reiterated my request for meetings with the relevant British authorities and urged the British government to refrain from extraditing or otherwise surrendering Assange to the United States or any other country until his entitlement to international protection had been determined in a transparent and impartial proceeding granting all due process and fair trial guarantees. On the face of it, my two letters to the British government of eight and 18th of April 2019 were not that different. And yet, within the interviewing ten, intervenings, 10 days, my perspective on the case had changed quite fundamentally. And that's a wrap. Tune in tomorrow for My Investigation Begins. This has been Wednesday's edition of The Unsanctioned Citizen. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com. <laughs>